Welcome, everyone, to Everyday Holiness, a Faith ND podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is Dan Allen, Spirituality Program Director, and I have the privilege today of being joined by Father Peter Rocca, a Holy Cross priest and currently the rector of the Basilica of the Sacred Heart on campus. And again, we'll be talking to him about his vocation, his story, and especially some of his perspective as rector of the Basilica, what he's seen there. So very happy to have you join us today, Father Rocca. Dan, it's nice to be here. Thank you. Great. Well, let's just start off telling us about yourself, especially your childhood and family growing up. Okay. I originally was from Chicago. We grew up mostly in Arlington Heights, Illinois. I have four siblings. There were the four boys and my baby sister. <laughs> Poor thing. Right. <laughs> and we lived in a suburb, Arlington Heights, which was very, very Catholic. So we all went to the local parochial school. I knew no one who went to a public school. <laughs> Not a soul. Wow. <laughs> And we had very large classes. In my school, there were 16 nuns, Dominican sisters from Kentucky. They were just wonderful women. For some reason, there were also Dominican sisters in the same community that they had in Boston. And so we had some of the sisters from Boston and Kentucky teaching us. And oftentimes, we weren't quite sure what they were saying. Right, all kinds of accents. Because of the there. accents. We kept whispering to one another, what'd she say? What'd she say? But... There was one nun in each class, and we had 60 students in each classroom. And there were two classes of each grade. So you'd had 120 first graders, 120 second graders, et cetera. So Mm -hmm. there was a huge school. We went to Mass every day, the whole school. Hmm. And this was, you know, back in the Middle Ages before the Second Vatican Council. (laughs) The liturgy was in Latin. And it was basically a requiem mass every day with black vestments. But they really encouraged participation at mass. Mm -hmm. So everyone sang the Kyrie, everyone sang the Sanctus, everyone sang the Agnus Dei. It was very participative, which I think was pretty unusual for a lot of parishes prior to the Second Vatican Council. Sure. In my second grade, I began taking piano lessons. And the good sister thought, well, since I'm taking piano lessons, I should be able to play the organ at Mass. (laughs) You know, so it doesn't exactly transfer that just because you can play the piano that now you can play the organ. But she thought, oh, I could play the organ. So I would oftentimes be playing the organ, playing in quotes, because I was really treating it like a piano. But I would be playing the organ for daily Mass for the whole school. I got to know all the chants really well. Mm Mm-hmm. Then I would also, they would ask me to play for like stations during Lent. Mm -hmm. So over the period of between second and eighth grade, I just got to know the the liturgy really well, the chants of the church fairly well. (laughs) I could play many of them as long as I had music in front of me. So the music was certainly instrumental, I think, in my vocation. But also, the sisters were wonderful women. These were just fun to be with great teachers, disciplinarians when they had to be. But, of course, you did not upset sister. Right. <laughs> because if you went home and told sister or told your parents that you had upset sister, well, then your parents would get mad at you because you upset sister. Sure, sure. So in any event, and also I got to know the priests really well. Mm-hmm. We had wonderful priests in our parish, by and large. They were just terrific priests. And Encouraging vocations was just part and parcel of that time frame. Sure. 
So a lot of a lot of young boys entered the high school seminary. Uh-huh. So I knew a couple of my fellow students who were thinking of going to the diocesan seminary in Chicago. Now, how did I end up in Holy Cross, you might wonder? Yes. Well, <laughs> that was going to be my next question. So. Right. So there were five of us children. I'm right in the middle. I had two older brothers. Both of them went to Notre Dame High School for Boys ah. in Niles, Illinois, which is run by the Holy Cross Fathers, or at least at that time was run by the Holy Cross Fathers. So we would, I would go out there with my folks to watch my brothers play football or basketball. You'd see the priests standing around. You'd talk to them. And I just thought this was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Hmm. It was a great school. My parents were involved in the Father's Club and the Mother's Club, and they would have stories about the priests. So once my two brothers started going to this Notre Dame high school, we got to know Holy Cross pretty well. The characters, the priests who were there, uh, the life of the school. So I'm thinking about, gee, maybe I would like to join this band of men. Well, what capped it all off was when I was in eighth grade, a Holy Cross priest came to our parish school mm. from Notre Dame, mm-hmm. the university. Right. And he brought slides and pictures and talked all about Holy Cross and the University of Notre Dame. And I thought, boy, this, this sounds wonderful. Yeah. So after eighth grade, I entered the high school seminary here at Notre Dame on what is now known as Holy Cross Hill. At that point, there was a seminary there called Holy Cross Seminary. Mm -hmm. Those buildings have since been torn down, and the only building that's still remaining from that period is the Butler Building, which served as our classroom building and gymnasium. Uh But now it's pretty much just, I think, our Holy Cross priests who are artists. They use it as sort of their uh, where they would work, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So by eighth grade... I love the liturgy. I really liked the priests. The Holy Cross fathers were seemed very attractive. It was not unusual for young boys to go to the seminary. So it just seemed like a normal and natural thing for me. So I was here in as a freshman in high school in 1960. Huh. Wow, right at the time of you know, the Second Vatican Council and all those changes. Right. Yeah. In fact, I can remember the first English Mass <laughs> at the high school seminary, and we sang a mass setting written and published by a Holy Cross priest, Father Carl Hager. And I just remember having goosebumps at mass singing these mass parts in English, and I just just thought this was wonderful. Yeah. It was was just such a moving experience. So I've I've been part of the changes in the liturgy right from the get-go. Right, for sure. Yeah. Talk some about the role of your parents in uh, finding that vocation and, and what that was like to right. leave your home at a relatively young age. Right. So my parents, were they were very devout Catholics. We never missed Mass on Sunday. Never. Right. <laughs> never. We all would pile into the car, all five of us. Uh, I don't even know if we had a station wagon. I don't think so. But we had big cars, I <laughs> right, guess. Right. We didn't have SUVs in those days. Right, right. So... Uh, We would always go to Mass on Sunday. Again, my parents felt Catholic education was so critical, Mm -hmm. so all of us went to parochial schools. The only non-parochial school that the five of us children ever went to was when my oldest brother went to Northwestern University. All the rest of us 
Catholic colleges right. or universities, Catholic high schools. So they were very strong in that regard. They were not my parents were kind of private about their faith. Mm-hmm. They never we never really talked much about the faith at home, but practicing sort of the standard things, never eating meat on Fridays. Right. Uh, we we always observed sort of like the letter and the law of <laughs> growing up. Sure. And we didn't really pray much together. I don't even know if we said grace together. Hmm. I remember my father saying something like, now don't eat this meal in 10 minutes because it took your mother all day to fix it. <laughs> so take your time, and we're not taking any telephone calls. Right. If there was a grace, that was it. That was it. <laughs> so, but they were, my dad was very supportive of the parish, uh, would serve as an usher. He was a very good contributor to the parish. So they, they just, they believed and practiced their faith in kind of quiet, humble ways, sure. but were conscious of what needed to be done to raise the children in the faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And in terms of leaving home, you know, I really didn't give it too much thought other than, I, you know, I would miss the friends that I'd made in grade school because sure. I went to the same grade school for years and years and years. But I made wonderful new friends here at Holy Cross Seminary in the high school. And and that was wonderful. I always came home, you know, for Christmas, and then we were. I was home all summer. Mm-hmm. But again, like I said, nowadays we don't have any high school seminaries anywhere. But in those days, it was it was not uncommon. Mm-hmm. The high school seminary closed in 1967. I see. So I was in the I was in the graduating class of let's see 65 I believe. So by then of course I'm now under vows by 1967. Yeah. But by then the community had realized that really a high school seminary it's a lot of expense and the return rate is pretty low. Sure. Very few of my classmates persevered right. to ordination. <laughs> and it's it's just obviously it's 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 probably not a good time to be sending people to the seminary. So right. so now we don't have that at all anymore. Yeah. How did your understanding of your vocation discernment develop as you continued further and further towards okay. final vows? So when I when I joined Holy Cross, I really didn't know anything right, about right. Holy Cross <laughs> other than the fact that they taught my two brothers at Notre Dame High School for Boys in Niles, Illinois, uh-huh. and that they ran Notre Dame. I really didn't know anything—I didn't know much about religious life mm-hmm. because my model of priesthood was the diocesan priesthood. Of course. So the parish I belonged to in Arlington Heights was run by the Archdiocese of Chicago. The priests were very friendly, but they were diocesan priests. I had no sense of what their life was like. I do remember that it was their life was very private, mm-hmm. and you rarely ever saw them outside of the parish. Right. So I remember once almost fainting when I saw one of the young associates getting a haircut <laughs> at the barber shop. I thought... Father, you're not wearing your collar. You're not, you're not wearing your cassock. You know, what are you doing here? You can't be a regular person. You can't. Yeah, exactly. You look too regular. So I had no idea what religious life was like. So I would certainly say that during my high school years, that was where I really began to grow in my understanding of what life in Holy Cross is like as a religious congregation, praying together, eating together, recreating together, uh, studying together. That word together mm-hmm. is really in, in some ways characterized most of what we did in the high school seminary. And we had wonderful Holy Cross priests and brothers who were on the staff at the high school seminary, 
just wonderful models mm-hmm. and very dedicated, excellent teachers mm-hmm. and just people that you would aspire to be like. Right. I think of one person in particular, like Father Bill Simmons, mm-hmm. who uh, died not too long ago, who taught Latin and Greek. And he was such an inspiration and such a gentle soul. We loved his sort of little Texas twang. I think he was from <laughs> near Waco, Texas or uh-huh. someplace. But just, just a very kind man, brilliant man, an excellent teacher. I would rank him as well, like one of the best teachers I've ever had wow. in, yeah. in all my schooling. So getting to know what religious life was all about, it began at that high school seminary. And from there, then I became a novice. Mm -hmm. So right after graduating from high school, now we never do this today. Right. But (laughs) I was just, I was like 18 years old. And I was sent to our novitiate in Jordan, Minnesota. Hmm. That was my reaction. Yeah. Hmm. I've never heard of it. And I hadn't either. (laughs) But we went there uh, with my classmates from graduating from the high school seminary, plus a whole group of guys who also were in formation, but not in the high school seminary, but they were they had either were in college or had graduated from college. And so that whole group, plus our high school group, all went to Jordan, Minnesota mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. So there were about 55 wow. novices. Wow. And that's what our novice master kept saying. Wow, wow, what am I going to do with all these guys? And it's during that year, which is like a a year-long retreat, Mm -hmm. you really become grounded in a couple of things. Prayer, silence, prayer, (laughs) and silence, and then manual labor. Yeah. But the emphasis on the year is really prayer, studying the constitutions of the Congregation of Holy Cross, and then working together. We also, we also did have class. We had Latin class and then also conferences given by the novice master. We had a, a wonderful older priest, Father George Scheidel, mm-hmm. who taught us Latin. He was just a kindly soul. He had lost, I don't know how this happened, but he had lost one lung hmm. somewhere along the line, somewhere along the way. I'm not sure where that happened. So he would talk softly, but he was just a very, again, gentle soul and uh, was a wonderful teacher. So coming to know the history of the congregation, the charism of Holy Cross, being rooted in prayer, our common life together, all of these things just sort of worked together. It was a bit of a tumultuous year, though, because this is 1965-66, right at the end of the Second Vatican Council. Sure. (laughs) <laughs> what are we going to do? <laughs> well, that was, I think, part of the part of the problem. What what do we do? And there were no answers, no mm-hmm. simple simple answers at that time. Mm-hmm. So, it was a bit, it was a bit of a tumultuous year in the sense that we started with fifty five novices, and we ended up with twenty one. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people left. Sure. The year of the novitiate was very monastic. Mm -hmm. If we weren't working, or even if you were working, oftentimes you had to work in silence. We hardly ever talked to one another, Mm -hmm. except during appointed times for communal recreation. Hmm. Even at meals, we could not speak. We would have someone read to us. 
you know, from the writings of maybe Father Moreau. I remember I was a reader for six weeks, and my book was A History of the White Fathers by Cardinal Le Vigerie, <laughs> the founder of the White Fathers. Right. So during the reading at dinner, you never spoke. And if the novice master thought, that's enough, and we'll let you speak, he would ring a bell. Everyone would say, Deo gracias, and then we would talk. Uh But the problem was, what do you talk about? We had no access to newspapers, Hmm. no television. We did have an apostolate on an afternoon, one afternoon a week, to go and counsel wayward children in quotes, right. <laughs> at a Catholic school in Minneapolis, St. Paul, someplace. Uh-huh. But that was it. And for one hour, and that was it. Then mm-hmm. you had to return to the novitiate, back to the regular routine of prayer, meals, and work, and conferences. So, you know, with the reforms of the council and as things are beginning to open up, it was a hard time to be a novice master mm-hmm. because they weren't quite sure what to do. And, of course, the novices were all aware of all these changes, but why aren't we making these changes, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it, it, was a, it was a tough year. So I was happy to profess my first vows at the end of that year. Yeah. So that would have been 1966. And from there, I went to Moreau Seminary mm-hmm. to begin college. Mm-hmm. So I was a freshman in college at Notre Dame under vows. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, obviously, that continued on to your ordination to priesthood. What what was it like in those early years as a priest? Oh. You mentioned oh. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned some of these priestly figures who were examples to you. Right. Did your own experience of being a young priest and in ministry match up to some of those expectations? Mm-hmm. Well, let me just say a word about being at Moreau Seminary from 1966 to 1973. Okay. <laughs> That was a little tumultuous. I believe it. When I arrived at Moreau Seminary, a new superior had just been appointed, Father Mm -hmm. Louis Putz. Mm -hmm. And Louis Putz, I think, was originally from Germany. He had a bit of an accent. He was in the forefront of making and urging for changes in the church. So our formation at the novitiate was very traditional, whether we liked it or not. Mm-hmm. It was very traditional. We wore the cassock all the time, except when we were working. Mm-hmm. We did not speak at meals, all these things that I've mentioned. Sure. So Father Louis puts comes to Moreau Seminary, and he's going to change everything. <laughs> all at once. <laughs> sort of. He wanted to change the name of Moreau Seminary to Moreau Hall. Okay. Because he thought it would be less less of an obstacle to people to come into the building if huh. it were just known as a hall rather than a seminary. Uh-huh. So he was involved in a lot of what some people might call sort of deconstruction of the traditional religious life. Yeah. Uh, I remember we had a fashion show for the seminarians (laughs) to show us what we should wear to class since we were not wearing the cassock to class any longer. (laughs) That's amazing. It was was really hilarious, the things we sat through and did there. And things did not necessarily – improve along the way, because a number of the priests that we had, not a number, but a few of the priests we had were struggling with their own vocations at the time. Mm -hmm. And this was a period when a number of priests left the congregation. Right. So um, we had priests living at Moreau Seminary who ended up leaving, Mm -hmm. not just leaving the house, but leaving the community. Right, right. And it was just very, it was just a very difficult time. I would say 
in my class, most of us were very happy by the time we were ordained deacons that we would be moving out of Moreau ah. so that we could move on to you know regular ministry sure. someplace. And after four years of college, many of us had hoped, for example, to move out of Moreau to go elsewhere to study theology, mm-hmm. either to Washington, D.C., to Rome, to France, or to South America. But at the time, we had a French-Canadian superior general who did not think it was a wise policy to send the seminarians out of their home country for theology. So we all looked at one another and thought, you've got to be kidding me. We have to stay here another three more years. (laughs) (laughs) So we did, you know. And again, uh, so we were in graduate school here at Notre Dame, and we had some really great teachers, but really some really not-so-great teachers. Uh Uh And by this point, we had just been here too long. And we were kind of a tough group (laughs) to handle, (laughs) I think, because we would would push back on a lot of things. Sure. So I think they were glad. I think everyone was glad when we were finally – when we had finally taken – final vows, we made perpetual profession, uh-huh. and then ordained deacons, and we were on our way. Right. And from here, from Notre Dame, I then began my public ministry, really, by going to Austin, Texas, huh. to one of our Holy Cross parishes, St. Ignatius Martyr. Hmm. It's amazing to think about all that you saw and went through. I mean, it's almost as if your life matched up perfectly to see such progression in the church. When you got into this active ministry, what was it like in parish life for you early on Mm -hmm. and all the changes that were happening? It was wonderful. So I went to St. Ignatius as a deacon. Now, St. Ignatius was at the time and may still be the largest parish that Holy Cross runs in the United States. Mm -hmm. I believe there are like maybe 3,000-plus families. We had a parochial school. In the rectory at the time... There were four priests when I went as a deacon, Mm. the pastor and an older priest who was sort of semi-retired, a colonel in the Air Force, (laughs) and then two other priests, and then myself. So having four priests and deacon in a parish, I mean, that's unheard of. For sure, yeah. In addition to that, we also had a, a convent of Holy Cross sisters, and they were wonderful. They were such a great group. They helped in the school. They helped with CCD, or they helped with sacramental preparation. They were a wonderful group of women, and we, had, we got along so well with them. And we also had a Holy Cross brother who also helped us on staff, and he was sort of in charge of the physical plant of the parish. And that brother lived up at St. Edward's University, which Father Soren founded, Father Edward Soren, and which is now run by the Holy Cross Brothers. And this brother expressed interest, you know, if he could become part involved in the parish. So that was wonderful. So in a a sense, we've probably one of the few examples of a parish where you had the Holy Cross priests, brothers, and sisters working together. And it was a wonderful it was a wonderful year. Which is kind of Father Moreau's vision in the beginning of Holy Cross, to have this, this collaboration right. between mm-hmm. the three and, right. and to see the beauty of that exactly. taking place. It was, a, it was a wonderful year in many respects. I was ordained 
at St. Ignatius Martyr Parish in 1974. All of my classmates were ordained here at Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. The reason I asked to go to St. Ignatius Parish was because my mother had come down with emphysema from smoking. My parents smoked nonstop. (laughs) It's amazing that my father did not get emphysema. But my mother, uh, she came down with emphysema, she would, and she was on an oxygen tank 24-7. They lived in Dallas. Right. So I tried to get up to Dallas. During my deacon year, I tried to get up to Dallas every week. Now, this was the era of the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. <laughs> From Austin, Texas, to my parents' home was probably about 225 miles. Creeping along <laughs> at 55 <laughs> was a real struggle for me. Mm-hmm. I think I met... Just about every Texas highway patrolman there was to meet (laughs) on the interstate between Austin and Dallas in all my many trips back and forth uh, to visit my my parents. So in 1975, while I'm still at San Ignatius, my mother died. Mm. I think she was like 58. Okay. So very young. Yeah. And then my father, a couple years later, he was about 60. He died of a heart attack. Mm. He was kind of lost after my mother died. Yeah. He he was a partner with Ernst & Ernst, okay. an accounting firm. And at that time, there was a mandatory retirement age of 61. Uh-huh. I can't even – I'm going to be 72 <laughs> soon. I can't imagine retiring at 61. Sure. I, I just can't imagine what that would have been like. And my, I think it was very difficult for my dad. So he then – he died at home in a heart attack – in 1977. And then at that point, I decided I would leave Texas and pursue graduate studies in what were my loves, music right. and liturgy. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, it's, it's amazing and ironic in some ways that you were the only one of your class who wasn't ordained in the Basilica, and yet the Basilica became a large part of your life I later ne- on. I had never thought of that. Yeah, yeah that's right, exactly. So let's get into that progression to the point of where what you did between that time and then and up to the point of becoming the rector of the basilica. Sure. sure. So I went to um it's kind of a funny story. I'd always thought of first of all when I was in in college here at Notre Dame at Morrow Seminary, I really wanted to major in music. Mm. But I was told Music is not a good preparation for theology. <laughs> you will not major in music. So as as progressive as Moreau was, right. I mean, there were a few things they would not let you do, like choose your own major. I did choose history, but we had to minor in philosophy. So I'd always had this love for music. When I was in graduate school here at Notre Dame, I took organ lessons from a Holy Cross sister. Of course, I had taken piano all through grade school. So now I had the opportunity, once I finished at St. Ignatius, to maybe pursue something in music, but I also really loved liturgy. I was fascinated, you know, growing up, I was fascinated by all the Latin books and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And as I studied Latin, and I had four, I actually had seven years of Latin. Hmm. So I was always fascinated by the liturgical Latin books. But then as they were as the new liturgical books came out from the Second Vatican Council, I was always always fascinated by how they made changes or what they added or how it was different or how it was exactly the same. It just sort of piqued my interest. Uh-huh. 
um, sort of compare and contrast. Right. So I had the opportunity to pursue graduate school, and I went to Catholic University. Now, how I chose Catholic U, I was sort of betwixt and between whether I should go to Toronto, which has a good liturgy program there, or maybe maybe to England or Italy or someplace. I had studied Italian, but when the superior general told us no one's going out of a foreign country to study <laughs> theology, so that sort of put the kibosh on my right. Italian studies. <laughs> but I remember I was in Paris with my father after my mother had died, and he decided he was going to take a nap in the afternoon, and I was exploring by Notre Dame Cathedral. And I'd kind of lost my way. I was looking for the metro or whatever they call it. I think that's what they call the subway. I may not may not be correct there. Anyways, I got kind of lost. And I I see these two gentlemen sitting at this kiosk, oh, about, oh, about 500 feet away. Mm-hmm. So I walk right up to them. And lo and behold, these are two Dominican priests huh. whom I had met when I was in Austin, Texas. And one of the priests was the director of the liturgy program at Catholic University. (laughs) I took this as a sign from God that I should go to Catholic (laughs) U. So that's what I ended up doing. So I spent three years in Washington, D.C., and I received two master's degrees. One was in liturgical studies, and the other one was in liturgical music. So for liturgical music, I ended up giving an organ recital. And liturgical studies uh, was just just a wonderful degree to work alongside of the liturgical music degree because in many ways they go hand in hand. So in January of 1980, I returned to Notre Dame and my obedience, (laughs) my assignment from the provincial was to reside and assist at Moreau Seminary. (laughs) That is the only obedience letter I have ever received. Huh. So to this day, I reside <laughs> and assist at Morrow Seminary. So I'm on the formation staff. Right. So for a period there, initially I worked with what we called the candidates. We now call them postulants. Uh-huh. These are the fellows who come in after they've graduated from college or they've been out in the work world for a while. And they're, they're thinking about a vocation. So I would work with them until they went to the novitiate. Mm-hmm. But now I have since moved to the professed seminarians, those seminarians who have made the novitiate, who have professed vows, and I I work with them in their formation in religious life and for priesthood, for those going on for priesthood. Mm -hmm. I'm also director of liturgy and music in the house, Mm -hmm. and I've been doing that since 1980. Amazing. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. But I find it very – I just love – working with our seminarians and really helping them, hopefully, to be good pray leaders, Mm -hmm. prayers, if you will, to lead people in prayer well, to preside well at the liturgy, to do it prayerfully, devoutly, reverently, so that what we do, how we lead others in prayer, deepens the faith life of individuals. It's not about me. Mm-hmm. It's about allowing that spirit to touch the lives of all those who are gathered for worship. Sure. Anyways, so I was doing my work at Morrow Seminary for the, like the first four years. In the meantime, my classmate, Daniel Jenke, <laughs> then Father Jenke, <Jenkey, laughs> <Right. laughs> uh, was rector of the Basilica. 
And we, we, we are the best of friends. Yeah. And so he would ask me what I thought about this, that, or the other thing, or I would just offer my opinions about <laughs> what was going on, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in 1984, Father David Tyson, mm-hmm. who at the time was vice president for student affairs, asked if I would join the senior staff of student affairs to work in that office. Right. So I became... Uh, an assistant vice president for student services. Mm -hmm. And I held that position for 12 years, Mm. one year for each apostle, (laughs) I always say. But who's counting? (laughs) (laughs) Which one's Judas? No. (laughs) So for four years, Father Tyson was the vice president. Mm -hmm. Then in 1988, I believe, he was chosen to become president of the University of Portland in Oregon, uh-huh. a Holy Cross institution. Sure. And then his his successor in that office as vice president was Professor Patricia O'Hara. Uh-huh. So I worked for Patricia O'Hara for eight years uh-huh. and four years prior to that for Father Tyson, so 12 years total. Right. So this brings us up to 1997. Uh-huh. In 1997... The then Father Daniel Jenke becomes Bishop uh-huh. Daniel Jenke. And his first first appointment was to be the auxiliary bishop of the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese. So he asked me if I would be interested in becoming rector of the Basilica. I thought about that for about one billionth of a second. Huh. And said, yes, right. yes, <laughs> this, this would be wonderful. I think, you know, my, my training in liturgy and music, I think, will be put to good use <laughs> well, well used. here. Twelve years in student affairs was plenty. <laughs> uh-huh. so, so in 1997, I then became rector of the Basilica. So explain to our listeners a little bit what that means, both the term rector okay. and basilica. Okay, so most churches have pastors. Mm-hmm parochial settings of pastors. The church, the Basilica of the Sacred Heart, by the way, it became a basilica while Father Daniel Jenke was rector. Right. So I inherited the title of Basilica of the Sacred Heart. So the basilica is really not a parish church. It's a university church. It really serves principally the faculty, staff, and students of the university. So in a sense, I'm not a pastor. We don't, we don't have communion programs for second graders. Right. We don't have high school kids. We, you know, it's, it's a university church. So a more apt title for the person who is sort of in charge is not so much the pastor but the rector. The title Basilica was given to Sacred Heart Church, I believe, in 1992. And this was was conferred on the church by now St. John Paul II. So a basilica is really nothing more than an honorary title given to a church for specific reasons, though. First of all, the church should have historical significance. The basilica is the oldest church of the congregation of Holy Cross in North America. Mm-hmm. So that means the current church, there was a predecessor, Sacred Heart Church, and prior to the Sacred Heart Church number one, 
was the log chapel. I see. And so it was the log chapel that was here, built originally by Father Stephen Theodore Baden, the first priest ordained in the United States. It was that log chapel that Father Soren discovered and used as sort of his home base when he first arrived here in 1842. From there, they built Sacred Heart Church Number 1, which was too small, and then they built beginning in the late 1860s, Sacred Heart Church Number 2, the current Sacred Heart Church. So it has great historical significance. Sure. When you think of all the priests and brothers and seminarians who professed vows, priests who were ordained there, brothers who made perpetual profession of vows, and it was from there, really, that priests and brothers were sent forth to establish parishes and schools. So it has a great deal of significance. That's one reason. Another reason is that it's a place of pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. Well, just check it out on football weekends. (laughs) If you can get in. (laughs) If you can get in. Right. I mean, over 100,000 people, probably well over 100,000 people, visit the Basilica every year. Mm -hmm. And it's a place of prayer. It just, it's, it's a very important place in the hearts of so many people. And so it's it's a place of pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. You go into the basilica at any time of day or night, there will be people in there praying. Yeah. Okay. So it has to be kind of a place of pilgrimage. Thirdly, it's a church where all of the sacraments are celebrated. It's a it's a vibrant, alive Christian community where all the sacraments are celebrated. And then fourthly, it should be a place that's well taken care of, sure. place of beauty. Mm-hmm. I always say folks who take care of the basilica they do such a good job you could probably eat off the floor right and so it was given that title basilica probably the most important of the reasons though is that it has historical significance sure. there's only one other basilica in the entire state of indiana and that is in vincennes indiana way in the southern part of the mm-hmm. state mm-hmm. again one of the earliest churches founded in the state Sure. So it's it's really quite an honor and a privilege. And once a church is designated a basilica, it can display various symbols. Right. Like this funny-looking umbrella <laughs> that you see and another symbol of, with a bell on it. So, yeah, it's probably in the United States, I've heard there may be 70 or 80 churches mm-hmm. that are designated basilicas. Mm-hmm. It's not the cathedral Right. A lot of people confuse that. So the most important church in this diocese is the cathedral in Fort Wayne. Mm -hmm. Now, some cathedrals can also be basilicas. So you have basilica cathedrals. Mm -hmm. But technically speaking, the Basilica of the Sacred Heart is not a cathedral. It's not where the bishop, our Bishop Rhodes, for example, has his Episcopal throne or chair. Right. Yeah, so it's just it's just an honorary title yeah, given well, to a church. And certainly uh, such a gift to campus and, and to so many people who have visited there and, and been a part of the sacraments there. You've been the rector of the Basilica for quite a while. Mm-hmm. About, about 23 years. Yeah, your longest tenure in any of the ministries that you were a part of. Except Moreau Seminary. Oh, that's right. That's uh-huh. right. Uh-huh. Since 1980. Okay, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> What have been some of your favorite memories of being oh, the rector of Basilica, <laughs> if you could narrow it down? <laughs> well, there are just so many. For me, I think one of the most thrilling of all the liturgies is celebrating the Easter Vigil, mm-hmm. where you baptize these catechumens now known as the elect. 
and they become Catholic Christians. And it's not as if the first time I see them is at the Easter Vigil when I baptize them. I'm also involved in all of these various rites that they undergo on their way toward receiving the sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist. So being able to be a part of that is that is such a blessing. It's such an honor and a privilege. I just love, and there are other, there are other times of prayer that we have in the Basilica. I think all of Holy Week is done so beautifully. You yeah. look at like our tenebrae, mm-hmm. which you know some people may think is the weirdest thing in the world <laughs> because it's all in the dark and it's a lot of Latin and polyphony, and yet the average age of the person there it's packed into that basilica is like 20. Yeah. Students think it's so cool because it's so weird. Right. Get to make noise in church. <laughs> right. And you can bang on, bang on the pews at the end. So it's, but that did not exist really prior to my coming here. Mm-hmm. So, but again, this was, this was at the invitation of the liturgical reform to restore the office of tenebrae in those places where this is possible. Like mm-hmm. cathedrals should be doing this, but I think we're probably the only place in the entire state of Indiana, maybe, yeah. <laughs> that has an office of tenebrae mm. like we celebrate it. Yeah. Holy Week is wonderful. Then, you know, marriages. Mm-hmm. I love performing marriages in the Basilica. I love hearing confessions mm-hmm. in the Basilica. Anything having to do with the liturgy, I just love. Even daily Mass, for me, it's such an honor and a privilege to be able to preside and to preach in the Basilica. One of the wonderful things, I think, about the Basilica is that most of the people who come there to worship want to be there. Mm -hmm. They come here because they realize, hopefully, the liturgy is performed well, prayerfully. The music is outstanding. We have five different choirs. Right. You know, that includes like a bell choir. Mm-hmm. And the music has just taken all of this, everything having to do with the liturgy is taken very seriously. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, one of the things that people truly appreciate about this place. I have been so spoiled by these almost 23 years you know, <laughs> presenting because I just know the music is going to be beautiful. Mm-hmm. If I'm concelebrating, usually the homilies are are very good, mm-hmm. thought provoking, you know, moving us to conversion of heart. That everything about the liturgy will be done beautifully, mm-hmm. and I think that's what people love most about the basilica. Mm-hmm. When word came out that you know I'm stepping down as rector, I'm not really retiring from <laughs> you know a lot of yeah, the other things I'm doing. <laughs> I can't tell you how many people got back to me saying, you know, we've never met, but one of the highlights of my time at Notre Dame has always been going to Mass after the football game or mm-hmm. on Sunday, and it has always been such an uplifting and moving and meaningful time for me and for my family to be able to worship together in the Basilica, and mm-hmm. I can never, ever thank you enough for that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's not just me, right. you know, but it, it's... It's my working with a whole host of people you know, who have made this possible so that we have people on, like our campus ministry team, who are in many ways very like-minded with the things that I believe very strongly in, uh, in terms of the quality of our liturgy, that we do it thoughtfully, that we prepare well, and it just all comes together. That is something I think 
a lot of people miss, like in their local parishes. Sure. You know. Yeah, we want the liturgy to be something that's uplifting, that's attractive to people, that they find solace there. Sometimes in in various aspects of what they're bringing to prayer when they arrive mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. and it, it's related to me this perspective that you've seen of the attractiveness of religious life in priesthood in the young men that you've worked with for many years in Moreau. Mm -hmm. What have you seen develop over the course of time with the different personalities and the types of young men who are coming and thinking about religious life and priesthood in Holy Cross? I would say that the kind of men we attract, basically they're attracted to religious life. Uh I mean, they, they don't want to live alone once they're ordained out there in the some little town someplace. Sure. They want to live in a community. But they also, most of our vocations come from Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these guys have experienced liturgy in the Basilica and also in their own dorms, of course, usually with Holy Cross priests. And I would say generally Holy Cross priests take liturgy very seriously. Mm-hmm. So there's something about how we pray together, how we live together, that is something that is very attractive to these young men. Now, I have found that they are anxious, the seminarians, to be able to do the liturgy well. Uh They want to do it well because they see it done well, usually, (laughs) in their dorm and at the basilica. And they want help. Tell me what to do. How do you do this? What do I need to be mindful of? So for the past maybe three or four years, I am now teaching in the Master of Divinity program. So I teach what is affectionately known as the Mass class. <laughs> so so these, this class is for like the fourth-year seminarians right before they take final vows or profess vows of perpetual profession and are ordained deacons. Prior to this... There was nothing hmm. to speak of. Mm-hmm. You know, they just they just sort of went into it, and but had not really studied the Roman Missal very carefully, had not really gone through the whole rite of the Mass, had not really talked about what it means to function as a deacon. So that really started, you know, within, let's like, the four, past four or five years. But it was really something they wanted— so I try to make my class enjoyable, funny, interesting, but point out, you know, what, what's really crucial in uh-huh. terms of presiding well, leading well, praying well, and even singing well. Mm-hmm. So part of my class involves teaching these seminarians how to sing like the collect at Mass, the mm-hmm. opening prayer, mm-hmm. singing the preface, even singing the gospel. And they see they see other seminarians doing these things, and they say, well, you know, we should be able to do right. these things too. I mean, we're going to let anyone outshine us. You know, we should be able to handle these things. Yeah. And so they're, they're very anxious to be able to do everything they possibly can to celebrate as fully and as beautifully as possible. Not everyone sings well, but they make an effort. Sure, <laughs> sure. But, but they appreciate the chance to be able to do that. So that's, that's been a wonderful class that I've been teaching. I also teach another class, which is for seminarians and lay students, lay MDiv students, Mm -hmm. in which we talk about all kinds of ways in which lay students and seminarians, and the thought is that 
by this point, they would be deacons. I treat them as if they were deacons in this class. So that when you graduate from the MDiv program at Notre Dame, if I'm the pastor at the local parish, I expect you, Mary Jo Frenning, with an MDiv degree, and you, Reverend Mr. So-and-so, Holy Cross Deacon, mm-hmm. to be able to do all of the following things. Right. That And I'm a very important pastor. I travel a lot. I'm in Rome <laughs> all the time. So I delegate all of these things for you to do. So we go through all of these things that they get some experience in putting programs together, choosing music, mm. planning a funeral rite, lay catechists, doing baptisms. So we look at the Book of Blessings, all kinds of ways in which a deacon, a late man or woman, can be involved in the prayer life of the local community. Mm-hmm. You know, everything from, you know, what, what do you think are important things in terms of training lectors mm-hmm. in your parish mm-hmm. or training extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion? Mm-hmm. Come up with a training program. Yeah. I wanna, let's, let's talk about it. Let's see what are the strengths, what are the weaknesses. So the, and again, the lay students in the seminaries, they want to be able to do that well. Yeah. You know? They don't want to act as if, you know, they got a big question mark when the pastor asks them to do something like this. Oh, yeah, we, we covered that in class. So mm-hmm. I've got some ideas, and we should be able to be a, a help. So so teaching in the uh, MDiv program has been something that I really, really enjoy. Yeah, and it's a beautiful example of preparation for for everyone uh, in their in their future ministry to be able to work together, lay and ordain. It's crucial. Yeah. Crucial. One other aspect that I'd like to visit is this sense of the pursuit of holiness and models of holiness. You've talked a lot about the sisters, the Dominican religious sisters, mm-hmm. and you're upbringing the diocesan priests, some of the Holy mm-hmm. Cross priests who you mm-hmm. got to know and then mm-hmm. and being part of community with. Mm-hmm. How would you define some of the tenets of the pursuit of holiness in your own life and, and the aspects of that that you've seen in examples of holiness to you? I would say when I think of, let's say, priests, brothers, and sisters in Holy Cross, the ones who are most impressive to me are the ones who really take their lives as religious seriously. They're committed to prayer. I mean, it's easy to blow off community prayer. Sure. I'm too busy, mm-hmm. or I've got all these appointments. Could I have made my appointment at another time? Well, probably, but no, I didn't. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss prayer. But there are just so many who realize that what is so important in engendering holiness in our life, it's our life will become holy if we live a holy life, Mm -hmm. if we try to live and be persons who are following faithfully our rule of life, again, which is common prayer, mass, common table, and common purse. All of these things help us And it's literally being faithful to the vows that we have professed because all of those things are in one way or another connected to the vows we profess. So the vow of obedience. It's not just that I've only gotten one letter of obedience in my entire life (laughs) is to reside and assist at Morrow Seminary. No, the vow of obedience also involves my my being that I subject myself to the rule of the house, that even though I might want to sleep in, I'm going to get up for morning prayer. Or I could work during this time and no one would even think twice. I'm going to be faithful to that prayer together or eating together, these kinds of things. So I think trying to be faithful to the vows, poverty, 
chastity and obedience, trying to live. Now, I'm, I'm not a poor person, mm-hmm. but I don't really own anything mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. except my clothes. <laughs> but the poverty should allow us to divest ourselves of self-interest so that we can be more selfless, more giving. Mm-hmm. And celibacy or chastity, my closest friends are in the community. Mm-hmm like now Bishop Jenke, Mm -hmm. that we have that comradeship, that friendship, which is what community life is all about. But it's really, I would say, my call to holiness is really grounded in my vows that I have taken. And I think, you know, especially like for married persons, that vow to commit yourself to that other person, being faithful to that day in and day out, that's, that's where holiness will flower mm-hmm. you know and i think i think that's true for uh for us in holy cross just being faithful to the life that we have committed ourselves to trying to and I, no, no one's perfect i don't have a, i'm not running around with a halo on my head <laughs> i mean i still have to struggle with laziness temper not feeling good wish i didn't have to do that mm-hmm. you know for example every now and then i'll say a, a late night mass in a dorm on sunday night sure you know after a a Sunday in which I've already been to two Masses, I've been to two Vespers, and I thought, why did I ever say yes to this? <laughs> so it's 9.30 at night thinking, oh, my gosh, I wish <laughs> I had not said yes to this. And in, in a sense, I'm a little like, Urgh. but when I get there, I'm delighted I'm there. Mm-hmm. So a little little moments like that, but it's, but it's in spite of how you feel. Sure. In spite of how you feel, you just, you're conscious of that commitment that you've made, and it will be a blessing. And in a sense, of course, there are these big moments of taking vows, receiving the sacraments, ordination, or marriage, or mm-hmm. and, and those are you know seminal moments in our life. But it's the ten thousand decisions after that that are hidden or much smaller that maybe no one's taking notice of. That that's this building these habits and virtues that, that right. really seem to lead us towards. If you look back on a life, a life of fidelity to one's mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. one's calling mm-hmm. and vocation. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, like my job as rector, there, there are many, many details, not, of, not all of which I am crazy about that I have to be <laughs> attentive to or whatnot. But it's just, it's, again, it's all part of the ministry. And not everything about ministry is, you know, glowing and wonderful. And, and it's oftentimes sacrifice mm-hmm. is involved. Mm-hmm. And, but, to, but not to do it begrudgingly. But to acknowledge the fact that this is this will be good for me to do this, mm-hmm. you know, this will help me to be attentive to perhaps something that I might not be particularly attracted to, but in the end, it it's a, it's really a blessing to do that. Yeah, and what's neat, you talked about the people that have written you since stepping down in mm-hmm. the next few months in your rector's basilica. You're starting to see some of the fruits of that fidelity. Um, right over the right. course of many years, yeah, and, it, and it's amazing how. I mean, you have to really no imp- You have no idea of the impact that you have on people. Now, in a sense, I'm kind of a public figure because I'm in the sanctuary, out in front of everybody. But I don't know the names of ninety ninety nine percent of those people there. Mm-hmm. And yet, it's amazing how. Now, I, I'm not on Facebook or any of that stuff. Sure, sure. But I am told by people who <laughs> are. That you know, I have I have lots of Facebook tweets or whatever they are, uh-huh. 
And and I've received a few, just I've received a number of emails, but some people, again, it's like, like I mentioned before, you know, we've never met, but we've always been struck by your friendliness, your kindness, the way you welcome us on football weekends, the way that you're outside of the church shaking hands, thanking mm-hmm. people for coming. We can't tell you what an impact that has had on our life. Hmm. But you would never know. Right. You know, just, sometimes just you think, well, that it's all on the homily. <laughs> you know, but it really isn't. It's mm-hmm. the homily certainly is part of it, but it's 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 the whole it's the whole celebration that will leave an impact. Mm-hmm. You can have the greatest homily in the world, but if you rush through the prayers and everything's just pro forma or rote, mm-hmm. that takes away from the power of the homily. Yeah. But if it if it all works together, that's that's that makes a big difference. Yeah. And my my little mantra that I always have, like I'm in charge of Holy Cross celebrations. Right. Like ordinations, final vows, funerals, big feast days, like St. Joseph's is coming up. When all the priests are gathered in the sacristy, I kind of give them the the Peter Rocker little spiel about <laughs> what we do. And then I always say, nothing fancy, just the Roman rite. Mm. If we just do the Roman rite well. Yeah. It'll have an impact on people. Yeah. You know, if we minister communion beautifully, mm-hmm. if we are gracious, welcoming, if we smile, but it's we don't want to be like Johnny Carson up there. Right. That that's not what I'm thinking of. Yeah. But welcoming, friendly, that that makes a big difference, mm-hmm. you know, in the lives of people. Yeah, they can tell that there's unauthenticity there. Right. Yeah. Well, right. just knowing you and your ministry for several years here on campus, it's clear that you're a very authentic give a very authentic voice to the faith and, and your own vocation. And along with the Basilica being a gift for us on campus, I think you've been uh, clearly a gift to, to many people in your ministry. So well, Thank you. And I want to thank you for being one of my MCs, one of my Masters That's of right. Ceremonies, <laughs> who does, you just do a, a wonderful job. I'm, I'm, again, this is all part of you know, the servers know what they're doing, the MCs know what they're doing, which means I don't have to worry about any of that stuff, I can just help lead the community in prayer because mm-hmm. I know that Dan Allen will be there with the book. <laughs> I know that Dan Allen will be there uh, helping me, assisting me at the altar, so I don't have to worry about any of those things. So I want to thank you for your willingness to serve in that capacity. Sure. It's, it's made a big difference. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Father Rock, I want to thank you for taking the time today with our audience. I think it's been a wonderful conversation and a lot for us to think about we feature the basilica and the beauty of the basilica, the relics, the stained glass, the stations a lot on Faith ND. So if you're listening to this podcast and have never visited, we'd encourage you to visit faith.nd.edu, and there you'll see a lot of the beauty of the basilica there and maybe even make a pilgrimage yourself to campus someday. So until next time, thanks for being with us on Everyday Holiness, a Faith ND podcast. Mm-hmm.